and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Triana, joined always by Stephen Canastrisi. <laughs> wow, better, uh, more enthusiastic intro. Hello, everybody. <laughs> yeah, we'll put some stadium noise behind it that time. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Some walk-up music. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> this is episode number nine, and in this interview, we will be interviewing Mr. Raymond Mace. Ray Mace is from... Uh, New York City. He's recently retired from the New York City Ballet. He was with the American Brass Quintet for 30 years. He's on faculty as the brass chairman and trumpet professor at Juilliard. So this interview is going to be covering Mr. Mace's experience uh, recording three different early American brass band albums, as well as some of his thoughts on period brass performance and how that translates to modern music making. So definitely a lot of really interesting stuff in this interview what a nice guy he was so awesome to talk to yeah i mean that's what we're finding with all these interviews these all these people are are so nice and generous with their time and their experience and their knowledge we really can't thank everybody enough but especially uh mr mace i mean this was a great you know hour and 45 minute interview really really cool i guess along those lines before we get going it may already be up by the time of the release of this interview, but we are beginning to release uh, shorter segments of each episode on our YouTube channel. Over there on the Early American Brass Band Podcast YouTube channel, you can find segments of each episode that range between 5 to 15 minutes, just kind of shorter little tidbits, uh, easier to digest material. So that's our first round of original separate content that we'll be releasing on there. And we'll also be releasing content that's completely unique to the channel as well. So go over there and check that out. And I think these next few episodes, those tidbit little episode uh, segments that we're uploading are going to contain video of us actually speaking. So you'll get to see us for a change. That might be a good thing. Might be a bad thing. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> the change out of my pajamas for once man yeah <laughs> all right before we get going with the interview with mr mace uh we want to give a quick shout out to our friends at addressing gettysburg and the civil war digital digest history tunes page uh both addressing gettysburg podcast and the digital digest history tunes page are both really great resources and are putting out really great content so we'll provide links to the podcast and the History Tunes page in our show notes, and we encourage you to go check them out. And without further ado, here is our interview with Mr. Ray Mace. Well, thank you, Mr. Raymond Mace, for joining us today on the Early American Brass Band Podcast. Uh, if we're trying to possibly start a video component on YouTube of this as well, but this is not uh, a good episode to be starting with that because Stephen Canistrace's video is not working. So no, we, I'm we on my second put, computer of the day. This is a nightmare. We're going to have to put a pin in that one for another episode. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I guess we can maybe, if you don't mind, start towards the beginning of, of when things began for you musically and, and just kind of go chronologically for there from there. So if you don't mind, uh, can you give us a little background of when you kind of started playing your instrument and maybe uh, the the musical education that you had early on? Sure. So uh, actually, my dad was an amateur trumpeter, so uh, got me started young. He actually started me playing when I was five. Uh, so I was a little bit ahead of the game, let's say. But um, as with most 
young people, maybe it wasn't until you know, ninth, 10th grade around there that I really started feeling, you know, that music would be in my future. Uh, and it was then that I started to study. Um, I'm from Connecticut and uh, we could commute up to the Hart School on Saturdays. And I started getting lessons with a guy named Roger Murtha, who was a longtime faculty member there. Um, and, you know, as with uh, a lot of young people, by the time I was sort of maybe a junior in high school, I knew that I would go on into music. Um, I attended uh, New England Conservatory with, where I was a student of Armando Gatala and uh, uh, got a Bachelor of Music degree there and uh, very quickly transitioned into professional life. Um, uh, the timing was right, let's say, during my senior year of college, I auditioned for the American Brass Quintet and uh, was fortunate enough to be invited to join the group. So I kind of went right from Boston, uh, right to Aspen, Colorado to start with the group out there. So uh, I was one of those ones who, you know, got lucky and got a job right away. And uh, I did the quintet for 40 years. So uh, it was pretty logical uh, stepwise progression for me. But um, so music was around, uh, as I said, my dad was an amateur trumpeter. He actually taught the drum corps, uh, one of the drum corps up in Connecticut. And I played in the drum corps for a while and did a lot of different things in high school. I, I was not, um, I was not in a program where I thought, oh, I'll be an orchestral player. Uh, I really played a lot of different things. I played a lot of pop music. Um, I played a lot of gigs. And in some ways, I think that's what attracted me more about the music field than, than thinking long-term about, you know, security or a type of job. Uh, and maybe coming to New York was a really um, logical move for me that the American Brass Quintet was never, you know, it was never a full-time group. It's a, mm -hmm. as a concertizing season, but being in New York maybe was ideal because uh, I could do a lot of different things there and, you know, played in orchestras, uh, did some early music, obviously I did brass band with the quintet and things. Mm -hmm. So a lot, a lot of diversity, but I think that suited me very well. So do you think that it was because of your dad being a musician as well, that you were exposed to all those different genres of music that you were talking about? Or is that kind of something that you had the bug that sparked your interest on your own? It's a great question. Um, I, I think certainly his influence uh, sort of, um, you know, just by default, him having been an amateur player, he played club dates. Um, so he was, he was kind of involved in music, but not, not that seriously, but, you know, he exposed me to a lot of different players when I was a kid. I mean, I listened to, you know, Louis Armstrong and Maynard Ferguson and Doc Severinsen and Maurice Andre, but, but uh, I, I really, the distinction of, oh, you'll be a classical player, that distinction wasn't made for me when I was a kid. And uh, I never thought about it. I just did what came along. And in high school, uh, I, I became a busy player. I played a lot of, a lot of pop music and, and uh, enjoyed it a lot. It never occurred to me, oh, maybe I'm not supposed to do that. You know, maybe I'm supposed to be a classical player. Never occurred to me. Uh, and even when I got to NEC, I still... Um, I, I wasn't quite as active. Uh, I, I continued to play in a pop music group in, around Hartford. So I would commute on weekends back to Hartford. Mm -hmm. Eventually I stopped playing um, you know, more commercial music, but uh, uh, it was again, a big part of my early training was playing a lot of different stuff. So you, you didn't go into NEC with that orchestral frame of mind going in not there at, at any point. No, no, no. That's not, not at all really. Uh, and NEC was interesting. Um, I, I, I went to NEC because my teacher, Roger Murtha, really encouraged me to study with Armando Gatala. Mm -hmm. And when I met Gatala a summer at Tanglewood, I went up and took a lesson and I got real excited about studying with him. And a kind of a real bonus that with NEC was that uh, Gunther Schuler was the president of the school then. And Gunther was involved in um, 
uh, you know, he's a very diverse musician. Uh, it wasn't a strictly orchestral training program there. Um, and while I was in NEC, I, you know, I took up the cornetto. So I learned uh, and Baroque trumpet. Uh, uh, not that I was ever really great at them or anything, but I did play them and got interested in early music. Um, also got a lot of interest in contemporary music, which Gunther was so involved in. And that interest, when I moved to New York, uh, Schuler helped me. I mean, he, he got me some things in New York, uh, got me established um, and helped uh, through contemporary music and things. So it really, uh, it was a, you know, without realizing it when I went off to college, I think that environment for me was, was really a good one and didn't make me, you know, didn't require that I focus exactly on being in an orchestra. And I think it paid off for me. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. So you think that that diversity and not necessarily being tunnel visioned on a specific career is what allowed you to, to win the position with the quintet? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, uh, let me see. There, there was a scholarship brass quintet at NEC, which I was lucky enough to become a part of my sophomore year. So I had a lot of brass quintet training and, you know, coming up through, uh, through high school, I played in all kinds of groups. And I, I, I want to say I was, I was just a, uh, I was an ensemble player. That's what I did. Yeah, I played solos here or there or whatever, but uh, it wasn't so important to me. The groups that I played in were fun. Um, I liked them. I liked being part of a group and playing in a brass quintet at NEC was, again, very logical outgrowth of what I had been doing. Um, and, and I think when the when the job in the ABQ opened up, uh, um, again, I was fortunate to get a chance at it. Uh, Maybe you know the name John Swallow uh, was a very well-known. Uh, familiar now. Well, John Swallow was the tenor trombonist of the uh, New York Brass Quintet um, okay. and also played at the New York City Ballet. But John would commute from New York up to NEC and teach. Uh, he coached our quintet. And when the opening came along for the ABQ, um, they weren't necessarily going to have a national audition and mm -hmm. probably weren't going to even audition outside of New York City. Oh, but wow. uh, he worked with those guys at the City Ballet and... Uh, uh, he mentioned to them that maybe there was this kid from Boston that they might like to hear and uh, maybe want to give me a shot. So I got lucky that I got a chance to audition for the group. Uh, uh, and it, obviously I spent 40 years there, so yeah, it yeah. worked out for me, you know, uh, it was a, a job I really liked. But again, the, the group orientation was already always uh, important to me. It's, uh, I guess it's kind of what made me tick a little bit. Um, I liked being in groups. Uh, the quintet ABQ was a just a really the right move for me and uh i liked everything about it i mean as you i'm sure you know with oh yeah with a group uh there's so much work to do outside of of just the music and um and i liked it i still like it i still like administration i have a you know a partially administrative job at juilliard being chair of the department mm -hmm. um and so it, it suits me very well and and again i think uh, for the quintet having a vision of that a little bit was really helpful to the group too yeah, very cool. I think, uh, Stephen, I don't know if you've heard this story or if it's a myth, I don't even know. But in high school, I remember hearing that the American Brass Quintet, whenever you guys would have an opening, I guess we can put that in quotes, or we're, we're seeking to add a, another player, a new player, you would uh, hear them play for a little bit, but then spend the rest of the day like hanging out with them and, and trying to get to know them as a person. Is, is that... Actually yeah, true. No, that's, that, um, that's, that's really very accurate. Um, uh, what would happen was, um, yeah, we'd hear people play and, 
usually we'd have them play just a little solo, but the rest of the time playing would be spent with the quintet playing, you know, pre-determined uh, excerpts of quintet repertoire that we'd send out ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but then we would have a, a real interview, uh, not quite like hanging out all day. Oh, okay. <laughs> we would have a real interview and had prepared questions. And, you know, uh, the ABQ is an interesting group. Uh, it, it obviously continues now as from when I was in it, but I think all along the ABQ was a group where the members saw it as real priority. Um, nobody took things that would conflict with the ABQ's concert schedule and, um, you know, we kind of put it on a pedestal. It was really important to everyone. And, and fortunately, uh, no one in the group really looked to the group. Well, this is how I make my rent. I mean, this is my income. Um, and that was lucky because I think it meant that we could do what we wanted to do and we could have the group on the level we wanted it and not have to think, oh, but we're going to have to be, uh, we're going to have to be more successful. We're going to have to have more concerts. We're going to have to, you know, appeal in a different way. Um, fortunately it never became a pressure in the group. And when we would audition someone seeing how the ABQ would fit in their, in, in their life, uh, was really important. You know, you wanted to bring somebody in that would view the group the way we did. Uh, otherwise you're gonna have trouble. <laughs> you're gonna have problems, you know, you try and decide what to do. So, uh, got lucky. I think, um, I, I was amazed over my 40 years. Uh, rarely did we have sort of gut-wrenching arguments or discussions of, you know, the future of the group and why are we doing this and why aren't we doing this? It, it always seemed um, pretty natural. This is what we do. This is how we do it. And we'll keep doing that. Uh, we all liked what we did. So, uh, you know, we, we were able to keep it at a very high level the whole time. Yeah, yeah I had heard that that story too, or kind of how the audition process went. And it was always used as an example of why, everything beyond your playing is super important in, you know, how you interact with your colleagues. And um, yeah, I mean, for a group that's been around as long as the American Brass Quintet has, I mean, I think it really speaks to how important it is that everyone is kind of on the same, uh, same level and playing out of the same playbook with, with how they perceive the group. So that's a super important message. Well, there's, there's no question that uh, when you're out on tour, um, you know, you spend a couple of hours every day or two playing a concert together. Uh, and the rest of the time you're living with these guys, you know, you're, you're spending time together, you're having meals together, you're traveling, you know, whether it's in a, you know, van or whether it's by air. And, uh, you know, knowing that you like to be with these people is sure an important part of the group being successful. Uh, I, I don't know. I've heard certainly, you know, some groups, the guys don't maybe get along the same way uh, as we did. And uh, I, I can't imagine what it would be like. I, I just, um, I, I don't think I would be interested in, I, I don't think I'd last in a group like that too long. But uh, again, we were uh, always a close group, uh, always a close group of guys and very um, focused the same way, musically, artistically. It was great. I mean, I have no, you know, I look back and I say, man, I had a great run and I'm very happy about that run. Uh, not yeah. many people get to do quite what I did, so. Right, <laughs> definitely. That kind of reminds me, the total, irrelevant tangent but that uh the magicians pen and teller right mm -hmm. their their relationship is that they don't hang out they don't talk they don't do anything outside of their act together but they're not they don't dislike each other it's like they just set out to purely have uh, a working relationship and they don't consider themselves to be like friends with each other oh. and it's like i don't know how they would be able or well clearly it's worked for them but they're fine but like yeah that type of close interaction and creative process and you know being on tour and and, all, and or 
now a residency in Las Vegas, you know, how you can have that type of relationship for so long. I don't know, but yeah, it works for them. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's really a great question. I mean, it's funny. Uh, so at various times in the group, you'd have different uh, people at different stages of their lives. So uh, when I joined the group, I was, you know, I was 21 years old, but um, the older, oldest member of the group at that time was Bob Biddlecombe, who was 21 years older than me, uh, had a wife and six kids. Um, obviously, you know, we didn't hang out like, let's get a beer after rehearsal. Uh, you know, he had a lot of different priorities in his life maybe than I did as a 21 year old. Uh, but, but the, the respect and the, and the really getting along well, um, uh, Bob Biddlecombe is, is still around and I speak to him regularly. Uh, uh, he just had his 90th birthday. Um, you know, I learned a lot from that guy and we became very close over the years. We've been a lot of years together in the group, uh, and you know, different generations, but, uh, you know, certainly a, a lot of respect for each other and we had some great times. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that, that relationship is evident in the product that you guys produced for sure. So uh, yeah. I'd like to think that anyway. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> oh, it it's, is. It's <laughs> fact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so kind of getting us back on track a little bit. Um, the American Brass Quintet I have down in 1981, put out an album called the Yankee Brass Band. Um, was this Civil War brass band music, uh, an idea that the, the group kind of came up with together, or is this your idea, or did somebody ap approach you to, to do this project? How, how did American Brass Quintet get affiliated with Civil War brass band music? <laughs> no, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful question, and actually, I think it's a pretty, pretty good story. Um, so uh, it was not a like a conscious effort, let's do this project. Um, what happened was... Uh, back in, you know, 1974 and 75, uh, every musical group was sort of trying to explore its own American music past. And, uh, and we were among those groups, too, that we thought, gee, you know, for our concerts, we should have something in the bicentennial year. We should have something to play that is, you know, uh, American and some kind of brass history. Uh, and, you know, we looked into it. And as you, you guys know so well, there's uh, the brass band movement, of, you know, the, the late mid and late 19th century was a huge part of our brass history in this country. And there might not be any other brass history in this country really to speak of. So, uh, and other groups were looking at that stuff. Um, Empire uh, uh, was looking at the brass band journal and had done some recording of that stuff. Uh, I can't remember when the recording came out, but we started looking around. I found some, through a musicologist here in New York, a guy named Andre Smith, I found this collection of uh, Jose Ripley uh, manuscripts in the New York Public Library. It's it's an incredible thing. It's a um, there's a couple of hundred pieces copied longhand into a, a book, yeah. which the library actually let us. Um, uh, I, I did most of them by hand, or many that we did by hand, but they let us even photograph, uh, set up a photograph so we could uh, extract them, and I could do it at home and didn't have to sit in the library all day. But we we got some music, and so uh, in 1976 we played. So we're still on modern instruments, but during our, you know, our regular touring concerts, we had a little bit of music to play. Uh, but then it kind of got set aside. Um, it was several years later, uh, I was put in touch with a guy named Robert Rosenbaum, who lived uh, north of the city here in Westchester County, who had an extensive musical instrument collection. Hmm. And one thing led to another. I was in touch with him and he said, well, come up and check out what I have, you know. So uh, um, I got interested, went up played some of the instruments, looked at them. He had some fabulous things. 
and he was sort of tickled by the idea that I liked the instruments and, and you know, that we had a group. And he said, well, <laughs> I remember it. He said something like, well, if you guys wanted to do this, you know, play these instruments, what, what would you do? You know, what would you want to do? I said, well, I should just take these instruments today and see what happens. You know, he's like, okay, just take them. <laughs> so, you know, I remember driving down the West Side Highway with six, you know, over the shoulder and all kinds of valuable instruments in the car thinking to myself, what am I doing, man? I've got to get these into my apartment. You know, he wrapped some of them in like pillowcases and stuff. I mean, it was, oh, it was wow. amazing. Uh, but shortly thereafter, we sat down and, and got to playing them. And I sent them, you know, in the days of cassette recorders, I made a little cassette of some brass band stuff that we had played on these instruments. So lo and behold, one thing leads to another. Uh, we, we got in touch with a guy out of Boston who ran a company named Titanic Records. Um, and we did something of, uh, I almost can't remember the title, music of the mid 1800s for brass, something like that with six players. Uh, and then uh, that led to playing at the opening of the new American wing at the Metropolitan Museum. So we did, so, you know, it was like, we weren't saying, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna drive this thing. We're gonna really, you know, move this project forward. It, every, just a new step would happen. You know, we got the instruments, we could play them uh, and play them well enough that we felt hey, we're gonna put out a recording. We're gonna do this. The Met Museum got interested. Uh, we actually borrowed one instrument for them, from them eventually. Um, and then, oh, we're, they're opening the American Wing. What a nice thing to have this group set up in the lobby when people are coming in and playing, you know, old American instruments and American music. So then New World Records got interested and came up with this, well, let's do a real band. Let's do, you know, I guess we used maybe 18 players for that recording. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then it snowballed. So then I was in way over my head, so to speak. Uh, you know, okay, we've got we've to have some people here that really know what's going on. And Bob Sheldon got involved in the project, which was just fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, he, was, um, uh, he, he was such a big influence on kind of, keeping us focused straight ahead and, and making sure that what we were doing in terms of how things might have been done originally uh, mm -hmm. um, and his, his knowledge of the field, it, it was great. Uh, it, he was so instrumental in all three of those recordings that came out. Uh, so, you know, we did that recording. Um, after the recording, I mean, I, you know, we played maybe a couple of times on the instruments live. Uh, we did a, a concert at um, Symphony Space and uh, played with the whole band one time, but um, that's uh, in Manhattan. It's uptown, like in the '90s. Uh, it's not a, a, um, a it's it's not like Tully Hall or a real hall. It's more or less like a community music place, and we play. But we never really, you know, the the reality was, could we ever really tour the group or really not really? We had you know players that uh, were friends of ours, people that were interested in playing other early instruments, you know, other early brasses and stuff. So we had a nice group and people that wanted to do it, but. Once we set it aside, uh, well, we didn't do anything else for almost 20 years. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, we completely set it aside until um, uh, Nola Reed Canals from the Moravian Music Foundation uh, down in Winston-Salem got in touch and we did, a, you know, two more CDs. But uh, mm -hmm. it was just kind of a real sidebar to the American Brass Quintet in a way and mm -hmm. snowballed and became something bigger than we ever sort of imagined it would. Uh, but, uh, you know, it went on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In, in any of those side performances that you guys did when you were on the period instruments and you knew that it was just going to be a performance of that type of music for that purpose, <clears throat> did you ever perform in any type of early American band uniform or anything? Or was it always, uh, you know, all black, concert black type of thing? I'm afraid it was all concert black. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
I, you know, it was funny. I, I don't think um, a lot of times when you're involved in a project, you, you're not thinking about what's going to happen later or, or what that it might actually have some significance. Um, you're doing the project, you know, you're, you're doing it. And, and uh, so you're not necessarily um, looking down the road like, gee, we should include this. We should make it, uh, you know, bro a broader thing than it is. We just kind of followed our instinct and, you know, figure out how to play the horns. And that, that very first recording, uh, the 1981 recording, um, we, we were using some period mouthpieces. Uh, Bob Sheldon had a good collection of mouthpieces, which he loaned and we were able to use. But we weren't really, um, we weren't, you know, say, oh, authenticity is a huge priority for this project. Mm -hmm. Really, the, pro the project was about the music of the um, of the New England bands. Uh, we had some, well, those Ripley pieces. We had some other things that people brought to us, something from the uh, uh, Manchester, New Hampshire band. Mm -hmm. so we had we had a good collection of stuff and basically as well, let's play these things as well as we can. And uh, so I, I tried mouthpieces. That particular project, I didn't use a historical mouthpiece. I used something that worked for me. I had a lot of notes to play, you know, I wanted yeah, to make sure yeah. I could do them. Yeah. Later, the, the the Moravian music ones, you know, the the, the Salem stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. We were we were more in tune with the idea of we want it to be a little more authentic. We all did use historical mouthpieces on that oh, project, right. uh, and I searched to find something that I could actually play, and you know, feel like okay, I feel at home on this. Um, but we we were I think we were a little more um, concerned with it than the early project was just a. Here, this was for the you know for the museum too, and for the opening of the museum, they wanted the project. New World wanted it, so we were kind of, uh, yeah, we went with the flow on that one, just yeah. the best we could do. Very gotcha. cool. With that, oh, sorry, go ahead, Stephen. No, I was going to ask how because you guys started off with uh, six players and then supplemented that that group with other players to do the larger um, ensemble. How did you find? I think you mentioned that some of those players you added were were friends and you know people who. Um, we're a little bit more involved with that music, but how did you find those other players to supplement the group? It really wasn't difficult. Um, when I think about the, uh, uh, the, the trumpeters that played with us uh, on the first record, uh, Bob Lang played, who was a colleague of mine in the American Symphony, mm -hmm. who I knew as just a great player and would put the time in uh, to, to learning to play. Um, Lee Soper was a was another player around New York who had an interest in old instruments. Uh, later, Alan Dean joined us. Um, and I'm trying to remember, I know he's on certainly on the, the Winston Salem ones. Mm -hmm. uh, and Alan and I played cornetto together in the New York Cornet Sacco Ensemble. So it, you know he was very interested in old brass and things. And so we had a, we had a really kind of a um, you know a mix of players. Uh, our tenor trombonist in those days, Ron Borer was a sackbutt player uh interested in old stuff uh bob biddlecombe who was the bass tremonist in the abq for all those years played euphonium in one of the service bands before he came to new york so when he was right out of school he was in a service band as a euphonium player so it i don't know it kind of all uh um it all fit together somehow you know we we made it go uh when, when we came back to it though i remember um when we th thought about the project uh I, I was a little more careful when when we did the ones for the for the Moravians. Um, for one, I um, I saw the manuscripts, and when I saw the manuscripts, I knew we we can't use this music, and somebody has to really do this carefully. Somebody's got to make this work. Mm -hmm. So part of the part of putting it together, I said to uh, 
Nola, uh, who was doing the music. This all needs to be put in the computer. I'm going to cite, uh, I'm going to, we're going to proofread it with a group on modern instruments, just sit down and read through everything. So we know that when we sit down with the old instruments, we're not saying, gee, what's the note in bar 15? Is it a this or that? So yeah. we, and, we really and no excuses on the period horns. Too. <laughs> right. So we, so we really did it. Um, I, I made that kind of a, a stipulation. We have to do it right. I, I don't want to see us doing this and kind of throwing it together somehow. And and she was great. I mean, she put all this stuff in the computer and the proofreading was very easy, but we would just get together with students and read and uh, see that we had what we needed. Um, and then with the instruments, um, it's interesting that uh, all the rehearsals for that, for the later project, um, everybody clipped a tuner on the bell. You know, so they had an own individual tuner to watch on the music stand. And it, it was really, um, I look back and I think that saved us in some ways. We just made everybody just watch your own pitch and let's just do it that way for a while. I, I found like in the early recording, you know, it probably it just kept, it would ride up, you know, the, the pitch would get, would, would start to ride up a little bit and nobody was keeping it in check. We're playing by ear, you know, the way you should. Mm -hmm. um, but the lack of familiarity with the instruments, I think led that to go, uh, to be more extreme than it would be if we were all playing instruments we played all the time. So for that, again, the later project, um, using the, the tuners in rehearsal, you know, you could just see where it was going. You could, you could mm -hmm. check it out and we could stop and okay, this, everybody check it out. This is where we are. Everybody take an egg, you know? So it was, um, uh, we used a lot of different things at our disposal for that project. And I think it really helped it. You know, we just, we were, we were better suited for those two recordings than, than the early one. So for the two the two Moravian CDs, you guys were trying to get to A440, or you were just trying to agree on an A that was high? Yeah, uh, actually, we did try to go to 440. I, I don't think it was quite like, uh, you know, if if the end of a piece, the tuner was coming in at 441 or two, or nobody was complaining. But uh -huh. it kept that from that idea that... that um, of particularly when you play in the upper register, whether it would start to get sharper and sharper. And again, without the familiarity of playing that instrument a lot, um, it could get out of control. And I mm -hmm. think we really, uh, it really made a difference um, to keep it, keep checking it, you know, and, um, and, you know, we were, we didn't have a huge window to get either of those projects done. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of bring the, the band together, rehearse for a few days. Um, we brought it in, the ABQ have, uh, does a class at Juilliard. So we brought the band into the class at Juilliard to play for the class, just to have a, you know, to do some playing on them in front of people. And, uh, and then, you know, like two or three days of recording all day. And, mm. you know, we'd kind of, well, if we don't get it done in those two or three days, it's not going to get done because everybody's yeah. going to go back where they, to their lives, you know? So uh, there was some pressure with that, with that project to get it, uh, both of those to get it, um, you know, really done in the time frame that we had. Uh, and it was a lot of work, but actually we didn't get in huge trouble uh, in either uh, in either recording. I didn't feel we were, you know, up against it at the end of the days. We we planned it out carefully and we knew what we were doing. Um, and again, I, I have to shout out, you know, in a way to, to Bob Sheldon. Uh, uh, the the second of those recordings was Bob's last uh, playing professionally, and mm -hmm. he announced to us as we, he came up to New York. He he stayed. Uh, 
uh, we had a place for him to stay and he was really thrilled to be working. And so the first day of recording, he mentioned, you know, this is going to be my last, uh, my last recording project or my last playing, you know, publicly. Mm-hmm. So uh, we had a little party for him after the mm-hmm. sessions were over. We surprised him with like a cake and it was yeah. really, I, I felt really good about that. You know, we were the thing he did last. It was, you know, it was a really nice yeah. thing. And, and he was so great on these. Uh, he, he was, you know, he, he clearly knew what he was doing and was very careful not to sort of impose his thoughts, but would lend the information we needed when he, when it needed to be. Uh, clearly he was an expert on the job, but he didn't uh, infringe or anything. Um, I particularly was happy about that. I had a lot of responsibility kind of leading the sessions and trying to play very difficult parts. And uh, he, he never, never sort of, you know, uh, was, you know, pushing on any of that. He knew when to say what he had to say. And it was, it was, it was great. It was really terrific. So that last, his last playing was for the, the 2006 second Moravian CD. That's correct. Yeah, that was it. So that's cool because our, uh, what the second episode that we did for this show, um, was all on the Frederick Fennell's Eastman recording from, uh, you know, 1960. And, uh, yeah, we, we talked a fair bit amount about, uh, Robert Sheldon, his influence and his, uh, you know, facility to even making that album happen with Frederick Fennell. So it's kind of seems like the bookends then with that oh, yeah, maybe being his first yeah. project in or first. Well, it was the first band <laughs> CD that existed of that kind of stuff. So that's the first one. And you guys were the last one for him. That's that's really cool. No, it was really cool. And he it's funny, the, the instrument that I played on um, that I own is a Boston uh, E flat rotary valve. Um, and it uh, uh, I, I was able to buy it. I want to say before the 1980, before the first recording, I was able to to secure that instrument, which made a hell of a lot of difference to me. I was able to play it up to the standards I was comfortable with. Um, and one day Bob was looking and he said, you know, you ever really look into this instrument? Because it was a presentation instrument through a guy named H.M. Uh, uh, Wiley, who was a bandmaster in Peoria, Illinois. Um, and... Uh, I, I said, well, I've never looked into this. So the next time we were together, you know, the next day or so, Bob comes in, he says, oh, well, I looked into this. Uh, you, you know, there's all this stuff online about him. Here's a picture that I think is probably with the cornet that you have, which the band presented to him. All of a sudden, there was all this history, you know, and I thought, yeah, how yes. come I never did that? How come I didn't look at all this? You know, I should have. I just never did. But uh, uh, he was just, you know, he was really into this stuff and, and came up. He actually sent me some music. Uh, Wiley had written for the band in Peoria. I have it here somewhere. Oh, wow. um, really, um, it was interesting that there was this, you know, real significant history to this particular instrument. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sure knowing ahead of time, or at least when you started recording, that that was going to kind of be his last performance. That that kind of heightened the the stakes a little bit more for that last album. Yeah, he he was quiet about it though. It it, it came up. It, we had started. He didn't say it up front that this was going to be his last project. Oh, okay. And, and we were in the recordings when he brought it up. I remember it because thinking, oh, we've got to do something. You know, we just have to. So, you know, while we're recording, I'm thinking about, okay, I can, you know, I can get a, get a couple of bottles of wine and we'll have some food. You know, and I'm thinking of the party we're going to have when we're all done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what kind of cake should I get? It, it, almost. Yeah. <laughs> trying to figure it out. It was great though. It was really nice. Really nice. Yeah. 
typical musician to be thinking about the reception during the recital. Right? <laughs> well, the, the other one, with that, with that project that was, that was really interesting was, um, so uh, Juilliard, uh, the dormitory at Juilliard is in a building adjacent to it called the Rose Building. And there is some, um, there are some uh, small places to stay for faculty and things in the Rose Building. So Bob was going to be with us for a week. Um, and uh, so I arranged for Bob to stay in the Rose Building, but they didn't have one of these small rooms in the Rose Building. They actually had this suite that they would save for if some, you know, a conductor, some famous conductor was going to be something like that, which was astoundingly beautiful, uh, you know, four rooms of apartment on the like the 30th floor of this building or something. So I remember because the first time Bob came up, I you know he maybe stayed with me, slept on my couch. I don't know. It was very informal. But this time, you know, Bob was going to do the class at Juilliard and we, were, we said, well, I've, I've got a place for you, you know, it'll be fine. It'll work out okay. So I took him in the building and we go up on the elevator in the Rose Building. We enter this suite, you know, and I said, you, you know, Bob, um, is this going to be okay? You know, he's looking at me and I said, are you serious? Man, are you, I'm going to stay here for a week. It was like Lincoln Center, New York for a week. It was, it was very funny. We had a good laugh, you know, it just kind of worked out that way. He had a beautiful place to stay at Lincoln Center for a week during the project. Yeah, there you go. Man, wow. that, that's a nice, uh, you know, capping off of the, uh, of his experience. With, oh yeah. With, with that. That's awesome. Nice little cherry on top for him. <laughs> I'm curious, was that uh presentation Boston cornet that you were mentioning? Is that, an instrument that was in that first pickup from, was it Rosenbaum you said up in? No, Rosenbaum had a, a Fisk uh, E flat that um, uh, it was a, a th three rotary valves, but you know, upright, uh, not side, not sideways, but upright and p what looked like piston valves or piston uh, apparatus to run the rotaries. You know what I'm talking about? And oh, yeah. Know how to yeah. yeah. So that, oh, yeah. which was a, a very nice instrument, but the Boston came to me through a, there was a shop in New York for a, a short time uh, called the Center for Musical Antiquities. They had a shop on 57th Street, like a real shop. Um, and there was a husband and wife that ran the shop. And I, I bought a few instruments there. And the Boston, when it, they knew me by then, when the Boston came in, they called right away and said, you might be interested in this instrument. You know, and I went right down and got this. Uh, I don't know where it came from before that, no idea, but uh, it came through the shop. And uh, it, I, I, again, I think... Had that instrument not come around, I, I don't know if I would have been as uh, uh, as enthusiastic about moving forward on the projects. I mean, I, I found an instrument that I could really play, and I thought, well, I, I'm not going to be the problem. Hopefully, I'm going to be able to, you know, make it go. So, so were, were those Rosenbaum horns ones that were utilized for at least that first recording? Or yeah, yeah. So we did for the Titanic recording. We used six players um, and used exclusively his instruments. Uh, for the second one by then, which is, you know, three or four years later, uh, many of us had gotten our own instruments by then. Um, I want to say Dave Wakefield got a Boston alto horn that he probably still has. Uh, Bob mm -hmm. Bittacombe also had an instrument that he bought. I think it might have been a Boston as well. Uh, so things were kind of happening a little bit. We were managing to get some instruments. And then once the Met was involved, the Met Museum was involved, uh, their, their instruments kind of became available to us not the ones on display but they have a huge number of instruments in the basement all wrapped up and uh i was able to go <laughs> and we needed a, a a b flat uh um we needed a tenor horn and um 
so I spoke to someone there. I had permission that I could, would be able to go in and look at some horns and pick something out. And I went, um, so I went in and uh, the, the card catalog, there must've been 50 instruments in the basement that all fit the description of what I needed. Mm -hmm. And someone had already told me, probably Sheldon had already told me, uh, don't look at anything that is, look at only playable shape. Don't, because they have to unwrap these horns. You don't want to spend a day mm -hmm. there. You want to, you know, they, these people have other things to do. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm looking through and I found a maker that I know, I, I can't even remember who it was and the instrument was in playable shape. So I asked them to, you know, unwrapped it and I brought a mouthpiece, you know, I'm a trumpet player, but I brought like a trombone mouthpiece. Yeah, yeah. So I, I put it in the horn um, uh, and I was able to sort of play a few notes enough to know that the instrument worked, you know, it yeah. sounded awful, but I played a few notes on it. So the curator there who had unwrapped the instrument, you know, I, I put it down, I said, oh, this is perfect, this is great. He said, you're not serious because I sounded so bad. You know, I mean, it sounded awful. I said, no, you don't understand. This isn't my instrument to play. I play trumpet, but I can tell the instrument. You know, I tried to explain it, but uh, it was very funny. I said, you're not serious, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Just making sure there were no holes in the thing. Exactly, right? <laughs> that's what I was trying to do, but he, you know, he thought that I was really gonna sound like that, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious oh man yeah. <laughs> wow. for uh for those moravian recordings uh did the, the moravian foundation reach out to to abq to to basically uh, i can't find the word to to document their their musical collection or did you guys reach out to them wanting to to play their music or how did that one work out yeah, yeah that's uh so i was a uh, um commuting faculty member for the north carolina school of the arts for 24 years uh, from um, 1977 to 2001, I kind of flew down there every seven or 10 days and taught at the school. So I knew people there. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the board members of the Moravian Music Foundation was a guy named Phil Dunnigan, who was a flute faculty member at the School of the Arts. And uh, he, he knew, you know, we were good friends. He knew what I did and he probably knew about the brass band recording, but uh, he was the one who encouraged uh, Nola Reed Canals, who was the director down there, to reach out to us to see about the project. And um, again, at first, I was a little hesitant with the idea that, you know, I I was a busy guy in those years, and you know, it wasn't like I had time sitting around. And I can do take on a big recording project. Uh, the quintet was busy, mm -hmm. but um, she reached out to me, and we met. I went down. I I looked at the original music. Uh, <laughs> that was a good story too. The, you know. The, put on the white gloves and to touch the old parts, you know, the music. And I went through trying to figure out what we had and what we didn't have. And, you know, after a few minutes, I uh, we were in like this vault, you know, I said, you know, um, everything seems to be in order, but there's no first alto parts to anything. And uh, she said, oh yeah, he was captured. So <laughs> it was like, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and actually, I don't know if you know, maybe do know much about that band, but um, there's a book, uh, uh, the, that a diary of one of the players no. that documents everything. It, it, I got real fascinated with the whole thing. They know so much about the band, the players, uh, where they were, where they were during the war, um, the yeah. end of the war for them. It's it's a fascinating, I want to say the title of the book is a, a Johnny Red Band from Salem is the title of the book. Uh, but so anyway, she she engaged me and I looked at things and that's when I, said, well, if we're going to do this, this is what I need. Uh, I need the music to be copied. So nobody's, you know, squinting to read off old parts. It has to be done right. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to need to have the music well in advance so we can read through it and, you know, get a good look at it. Uh, I need time. I had to, we, we actually use some of their instruments for that. Uh, and they have some Rob Stewart copies when we used, particularly the bass, which 
I was concerned about um, uh, making sure we had a good a good instrument for uh, John Rojak, the bass trombonist of the quintet, uh, who still is now, um, was going to play the bass part. So I thought we've got to make sure that he's got something he's comfortable with because he's going to be on the bottom. So uh, they sent some instruments off. Uh, I, geez, we borrowed something. Um, I, I remember getting somebody on the phone and, um, uh, and, and sort of double talking my way to say, you know, one of these calls like, well, you don't know me, but I play in the American Brass Quintet. We're trying to do a brass band recording and we know that you have an instrument that we could really use if it any way pop, and I go through this, this whole song and the dance, I get to the end of my spiel and the guy says, sure, where do you want it? Where do I send it? I was like, oh, great you know but I, yeah, you know, yeah. I was like begging that we needed this so anyway we um we we did it right we had the um they really provided what we needed then so um and and obviously the, the connection between me at the school of the arts was a logical one to you know move forward with the project i was down there every week anyway so mm-hmm. you know i had were, that. were there any similar players or instruments from that first recording to the the two moravian recordings uh, oh yeah um so th- those of us the ABQ guys more or less had our own instruments by then. So um, we were, and I, let me see, uh, uh, Kevin Cobb used a B flat that I had, which uh, he wasn't on the first recording. He was only a kid then. So um, <laughs> he was on the second one, but I had a, a, a couple of B flats for him to play. Um, Lee Soper uh, played, also played B flat. I think he played on both. Alan Dean, uh, we had another E flat. So there, were, there was a lot of continuity uh, uh, from from the old recordings, uh, recording to the new recordings. Um, the I, I want to say we used we used eighteen on the first recording, but this recording we used probably twelve brass, like two on each of the parts, kind of thing, uh, and a couple of drummers. Um, and fortunately, there was a drummer that the faculty member at the School of the Arts, uh, a guy named John Beck. Um, was had been involved with with a, a lot of this playing down there because there is a, a there is a current Salem band of some kind that plays they play these instruments and things he had played with them and it was perfect he knew the tunes and he knew you know the parts are sketchy and uh, and he he knew exactly what needed to be done so uh, we got lucky there that I didn't have to I didn't have to mess with that he was really on, on the case for that part of it so. <laughs> Well, I was going to ask, do you guys have any, any plans for a fourth? Is there anything in the works or do you think this, those three are, are going to be the. I, I, yeah. I, I think the short answer is no, there's no plans for a fourth. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not really playing anymore. You know, I, I retired from playing professionally uh, almost a year ago. And um, so, uh, I, and I, I think the group, um, you know, groups change. Uh, the ABQ now is they're all very, very, um, sought after players they all have a lot of careers outside you know very significant careers outside of the uh of the abq um a couple of the group members have young children at home so it's um focusing on the group itself and on what the abq does is you know the abq members have their hands full with with doing that now and i i don't think a uh it would take somebody to come along and say you know let's do this let's do this project it, it worked when I was there. Uh, I wanted to do the project. And again, I, I was careful to make sure I wasn't going to overextend myself in doing the project for the Moravians. But uh, um, when the second one was done, I think I knew this would probably be the last one for me. Um, yeah. it, it took a lot out of me to get it, get the whole thing together, you know, get it done. Right. Yeah. Did you ever return to that style of music, 19th century brass band music, recreationally uh, after that recording? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, we, we played 
so, so the Moravian music that came around, uh, we did some five part versions that we could use out on tour with the quintet and particularly when we were promoting the records. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, we've been in the early 2000s. Uh, we played some sets of that music on tour and it was great. We, we enjoyed doing it and we're you know happy to promote the recordings. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I no, I never really I never really played. Uh, let me see. I guess it was. Um, the Ken Burns Civil War documentary that's out there somewhere. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of the music was recorded in the studio um, on 19th, 19th century brasses. I was the cornet player on that project. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think there's a lot of different music on that um, that documentary. Yeah. My, my dad, it, my dad plays tuba in that documentary. <laughs> okay, so so yeah. and, and I know we just did some in the studio in New York. Not a lot of music, but we did some, uh, and and hired basically a freelance group of brass players playing 19th century instruments so you know that came along but that was that was quite a while ago uh, you, many years ago do you remember the uh the music that you recorded for that were you in what what they called the new american brass band for that recording do you remember i don't remember because really on, don't remember. on that documentary they have uh the old beth page brass band which my dad played tuba in and was on that recording with and then uh the other group was uh i think bob sheldon's I think it, it says under the direction of Bob Sheldon, the new American brass band. Yeah. And, um, and those were the two groups that, that appeared as brass music for uh, the Ken Burns documentary. It, it, Bob may have been up for that, may have come up here. I know we did it in the studio here in the city. Mm -hmm. um, I, it was one day, you know, we just showed up, we we read through the stuff and recorded it. It was not a, you know, we didn't take it home or anything. We, we yeah, just no. did it. It was a very quick uh, thing. I remember so little about it. I don't even remember when it was. I, do you? Do you know? No, it, it, it's hilarious that you're saying that because the the second interview that Stephen and I conducted for this podcast, we actually interviewed uh, Dr. Kirby Jolly, who is mm -hmm. the the was the band leader of the Old Beth Page Brass Band, and you know the group that my dad played with, and was my gateway into this music. You know, growing up, and. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, we asked him the same thing and we're like, so can you tell us about this project? And he didn't really give us that much of an answer for it. There, there wasn't that much of a story. <laughs> right. He said, yeah, we, we got a call. We went to the city, we recorded and then we left. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was pretty much it. But I think that docu documentary came out in 1992, maybe. Okay. Uh, it was think... one or 1990 or 1991. I think. Gotcha. Yeah. So that would have been in between the, the first two albums that, that the ABQ did. Well, it, it's um, funny yeah. that, you know, when you're doing projects, you don't think about, um, gee, I, I want to, I want to write down what we did. I want to keep track of it. I want to take photos. Uh, you, you go to work, you know, you go do yeah. the job. Um, uh, I remember doing it, but I remember so little about who else was there and, uh, uh, how we did it, you know, we just kind of went in and recorded and that was that. Uh, looking back on it now, I'm sort of sorry I, I didn't pay more attention or write some of it down. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just it's just one of those things. You do your job and it's later that you look back and say, gee, what did we do? How did we do it? Or who was there? But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Easy to forget about it. It's <laughs> funny. We're, we're fortunate that uh, in the second episode we did that I mentioned earlier, we did a deep dive on Frederick Fennell's Eastman recording on this music. And Fortunately, I guess him being a history buff and knowing that that album was significant being the first of its kind, those liner notes are, are pretty hefty. And then we also were able to get a hold of a, a bio discography of all of Frederick Fennell's recordings, and it has 
like personal uh, anecdotes and memoirs and stuff about each recording. And it's about three or four pages on just that Civil War recording that we were able to, to pull some supplemental information from. So oh, that's great. Yeah. 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 I saw uh, on on YouTube, there was an interview that you did with the guys at Monster Oil. And, and you had mentioned, or I think there was like a question asked about playing popular music or or jazz or something and and you had mentioned that uh, the guys of abq stood up and said that they weren't willing to play scott joplin rags for a particular performance that they were asking joplin rags to be performed for uh i guess my question is what difference do you see between scott joplin rags and polkas and waltzes during the the 1800s it's a a great question and I guess I'd say you're not the first person to bring up that particular part of that Monster Royal interview. <laughs> People always want to talk about that. So uh, just a little backstory is simply that. Um, so when the American Brass Quintet was founded in 1960, uh, it actually, uh, it was two groups that broke apart at that time. And one group became the Metropolitan Brass Quintet. Uh, and they wanted to play a lot of young audience concerts. They wanted to do a lot of informal music stuff. But uh, the American Brass Quintet then became a group that focused on being a concertizing group. That was their mission. That's what the guys wanted to do. And um, and, and they, they proceeded to do it, I, I want to say, properly. Uh, they began commissioning a lot of new pieces. Uh, they looked to the past with the idea of um, works that were, you know, significant in the brass history, not necessarily exclusively brass pieces, but like Renaissance music, we know that brass instruments were involved, were uh, involved in the performance of that music. We have that little sprinkling of 19th century brass music of Ewald and some others. But um, to, to make a long story short, the, the mission of the quintet really was to promote serious brass music and hopefully with the idea that a group like the American Brass Quintet would be able to be playing on concert stages like the Juilliard String Quartet played or, you know, serious chamber music venues. Um, that never changed. Uh, that was what the group was when I joined it, and it's what the group was when I left. What changed was what went on around the group. Um, and uh, Chris Gecker said it better than anyone when we were sort of, uh, I hate to put it this way, but sort of defending who we were at a master class somewhere or something. And he said, you know, um, the more we stayed the same, the more different we became. And that's because of the rise of a very popular music uh, orientation uh, of brass quintets. And I don't think the American brass quintet was ever uh, opposed to that happening, or it simply was not something we were interested in doing as a group and not something we were going to pursue. We were never particularly sensitive about it, uh, except when people would kind of corner us on it, like, well, we should be sensitive about it. We didn't want to be sensitive about it. Um, you know, I know the guys and knew the guys very well in Empire, know the guys in Canadian. Um, these groups did what they felt they wanted to do musically and artistically and had great runs and continue. Canadian continues to have a, a great following. Um, we didn't do that. That's not what we wanted to do. Um, we wanted to keep doing what we were doing in terms of, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, more serious repertoire, pieces being written for us. So um, that particular incident about the Scott Joplin rags uh, came along where um, it was our actually our manager who called me and kind of put it, framed it in a way that was kind of like, oh, well, yeah, all right, you don't play that stuff. 
but of course you're going to do it because you know you're going to get a concert out of it and that kind of touched a nerve with me i kind of was like no that's not what we do and you no know, we're not going to do it just to get a concert out of it um it it just didn't sit well and i knew it didn't sit well with the group and uh so that idea that we weren't going to play joplin it wasn't this sort of line in the sand you know that oh we're we're gonna uphold this great high ideal not at all it's just we wanted to be who we were and we, we we wanted to play what we wanted to play and if that meant we weren't going to play a concert or many concerts fine uh we we're going to continue doing what we did so it sounds uh, like if somebody came more aggressively at you with this 19th century brass band project you might have the same uh response to to somebody asking for you know uh well, Hosea Ripley music kind yeah, of thing. I mean, it's certainly different in the sense that with the 19th century stuff, we're recreating or trying to represent a, a slice of American folklore or something like that. And I, I think it's a wonderful uh, part of American brass history. Uh, no problem in doing that. I think it's really makes sense that it somehow gets rep represented live and by, you know, high level professional musicians or let's say really fine performance. Um, you know, looking now to, to what's played now, uh, you know, the, the connection to Scott, Scott Joplin by, uh, you know, historical brass players is not really a, a connection. I would yeah, make. It's, not, it's exactly. not there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, again, um, uh, people, you know, when Canadian was really coming up and really made an empire really making a mark in the field, uh, people would, you know, constantly want us to have this kind of be angry about it, you know. I, we were never really angry about it. I, I mean, I think um, sometimes we would be disappointed if we would go somewhere to play and people seem to um, not understand what we were trying to do musically yeah, and just sense. wanted to be entertained. Uh, you know, I, I've kind of, I, I, I didn't enjoy those concerts particularly when it seemed to be much more about the, the, the funny guys on stage than it was about the music that we played. And, um, not to have a terrible aside to this, but people hear different things in music or music represents different uh, things in performance. Um, there is a relationship between the performer and the music. Uh, I always felt our group was about representing the music and the performers were, I don't want to say secondary, but were in the service of the music. I think for a lot of groups, the music serves the performers. The only reason they play the music is because somehow it uh, highlights them as performers. Um, that's not what we did in the American Brass Quintet. And I want to say, I'm glad we did. That's not what I, that's not what I or my colleagues played music for. We played music to, to, um, uh, because we loved the music and we wanted to represent that music the best way we could. I don't know that you can do both on a concert really well, because I don't know that audiences can shift gears very well. If you start focusing on what you do as a performer and highlight your skill and virtuosity, I don't know if you can then turn around to an audience and say, okay, you know, listen to this brass quintet by Elliot Carter and listen to the music. I, I don't know. I mean, it's a question I've asked myself a lot in my career. Uh, can you? And, and I think we, maybe which we try to do that. Um, and obviously the, you know, uh, it would vary somehow, or it's difficult to do both, but uh, the music came first, and, and that's how I see it. And again, representing music of other centuries, brass music of other centuries, seemed very natural and correct, let's say, ethical in, in modern brass performance. 
So you saw it more as historical preservation, not so much as you see uh, these quick steps and waltzes as being, you know, quote unquote high art type of thing, like like uh, like Beethoven. Like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I would say yes. Historical preservation is a good way to look at it. I think it's it's great stuff. I enjoyed it doing it, and obviously we we did it a number of times, and and uh, and never had a. a you know, never questioned doing it in that. But I'd say, yeah, it really was ba the basis of it for us was representing something from history as best that we could, bringing that to life for our audience or our, you know, recordings people to be able to check this stuff out. Would those three recordings you say be maybe as far as ABQ went in the, the popular realm? Um, well, actually, now you bring that up, uh, we did a recording for Japan Victor that um, was a, a little bit more, um, actually, there's some Joplin rags on that recording. There uh -oh. some, there's, some, <laughs> uh, there's some brass band stuff. There's some arrangements of Stephen Foster songs that I did, a, a, a variety of things. But, um, <laughs> well, it's an interesting story. We, we were approached to go to Japan by a, a, a really big management there that wanted to do a, a, you know, when the first tour we went, uh, it was three weeks. We did 18 concerts in 21 days. But to do this tour, they wanted to have this recording of this music and be able to promote this about the group. We had never done it. Um, this may have been 1980 even. We never played that repertoire. Uh, but when they came to us saying, we'd like to promote this, it was like, well, let's see what happens. Let's see what it's like. It was also the caveat, you know, once you're established, then you'll be yourself in, in Japan. You'll be able to come over and play concerts that the America for Asquintet wants to play. We did the recording. Um, I don't know if it even was released here or whatever, you know, I, I, uh, I know it was popular there. We went and did a tour, played a lot of concerts, and we kind of did a mixed program. We did the first half was what we normally would play, and the second half was a little bit lighter. Um, it was fine. I mean, I don't, we weren't opposed to playing. That was different than what we had done. It was a nice tour. Um, the plan was that we would then do a recording of what material we wanted to record in anticipation of the second tour. Uh, it didn't quite go that way. Um, Japan Victor was not really interested in the repertoire we wanted to record. They wanted us to do more of what we just did because it was popular and it, yeah, yeah, yeah. it, it worked out for them. Uh, so, um, but we eventually, we didn't do it. We didn't do the second recording. We couldn't reach an agreement on what to record. And I remember at one point feeling like I threw my hands up in the air. It's kind of sort of, well, whatever we offered, they reject what it is we really want to do. And they propose something else. Like I remember um, uh, a brass quintet version of the Nutcracker. This is not what we're going to do. I kept saying, this is not what we're going to do, but they just kept doing it. And, and, you know, after a while, I just kind of got tired and said, no, this, this relationship is not what we want to do. And we didn't go back for that management for another tour. We've gone uh, for other tours over there, but not for that particular management who clearly wanted us to have a different presence in Japan yeah. than what we were willing to have. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think you're hitting the nail right on the head that there's a very complex relationship between you know, the music and the performers and the performers in the audience and the music in the audience. You can't see me, but I'm drawing a, a triangle here, <laughs> you know, and, and for, for a chamber music group, especially, it takes a lot of thought um, to kind of determine what you want those relationships to be. And every party involved is going to bring different thoughts and different opinions on that. So it's really interesting to get your take 
on you know how that all works and how that flows you know from from one party to another in that triangle we could clearly spend a, a lot of time talking about that very thing because right. it was you know making what we did uh something that um viable for a broader audience or feeling like we could play a successful concert where obviously some people would be there knowing exactly what who we were and what we did but some would not uh yeah it was sort of trying i mean we would we worked very hard to come up with something that we felt represented us the way we wanted to be represented but would also be something that uh for lack of a better term an average concert goer could enjoy and and like hearing the group um yeah it was, spent a lot of time <laughs> trying to figure that out it's a great topic yeah and you kind of mentioned it earlier though that it it was liberating for you guys not you know, being passionate about the group, but then not relying on it to pay the rent kind of thing. So that kind of freed you guys up for that. Whereas I think other groups that might not have been in that specifically like financial situation would, you know, have to acquiesce those types of requests for popularity just to, to get the check kind of thing. Yeah. There's, there's no question that, you know, in a group, uh, each individual has their own personal priorities and their own reliance on the group and what the group can provide them. And if it's not at least somewhat consistent from among the members, you're going to have trouble. Um, and, and, you know, I see it with young groups all the time and I coach a lot of young groups that are trying to make a go of it. And, and a, a lot of times what a young group will think is the right approach is to try to be everything to everybody. So anything you want us to play as a young group, we'll, we can just do it. We'll play. You want this, we do this. And, and, and personally, I, I often advise those groups and say, that's not the way to go because you end up with no identity at all. And ultimately a group with no identity is not going to make a mark in the field, or it's not going to be something that people want to hear. It's like being uh, a cover band. <laughs> a cover band yeah. And, and you know, what you want to do is you want to have an identity and it's hard to establish an identity as a group because people have to agree. And there's, very frequently, a lot of sacrifice involved in doing that. Uh, I remember Meridian Arts Ensemble came up through the ABQ seminar at Juilliard. So we started there in 87, 1987, and um, they were young players in the school then, and the group started to get formed. Uh, uh, and by the early 90s, they, you know, they were out playing. And, you know, they went through a hell of a, a, of a journey as a group. Um, figuring out who they were and what they did and, and then trying to go full time and trying to have a program that would be suitable to play, you know, a lot of community concerts and a lot of concerts for, for, uh, you know, for audiences that were not particularly uh, in line with, with, a, you know, current chamber music trends or with the chamber music field. Uh, and ultimately they abandoned that tact and, uh, you know, the guys went on to, they, all have you know good teaching jobs and things and are able to have the group exist even now as a group that it's what they want it to be they don't play they don't go out and try to play you know a huge number of concerts and i think they're happier with the group this way at least that's my read on it is that when they were trying to go full-time it, it was a really difficult thing to do and very trying very hard on players to you know to have to go go that way and, and yeah. feel like um the feedback you get is not what you want or it's not, not representing you a certain mm -hmm. way. Yeah, for sure. Any projects or uh, promotions that, that you kind of want to let our listeners know about that's going on with you? Sure. Well, since I 
retired from my professional playing career uh, some time ago. Um, a few things I'm you know trying to get done, but no, nothing has become. Uh, I'm not single-minded about anything. For example, uh, um, I've tried to help the ABQ with uh, the library and getting some parts and scores to pieces that haven't been played in a long time in one place where they're being preserved and it isn't something where we have to find everyone. And do you still have a part for that piece? I don't have to mm -hmm. do that. So I've been helping with that a little bit, trying to do that. Uh, just recently, actually, I put out a, um, a book of Renaissance duets uh, through BIM. Um, the title of the book is Bicinia, which are, uh, you know, that's the formal name of the two-part music from the Renaissance. It just came out like a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was a project that I've been hoping to do for many years. And finally, uh, actually one of my students sort of pushed me over the edge a little bit. We, we were reading some and it was kind of like, Mr. Mace, why don't you just get this done? It's like, you're right, I got to get it done. So uh, uh, fortunately, uh, Jeremy Mateus over there was, uh, also, when we talked about it, he was like, you just start sending and I'll get it. I'll get it done. So once I had that push, I got that project done. Um, and, and maybe some other publishing things are going to come come along. Great. Well, well thank thanks, you. guys. I really enjoyed it. I yeah, had a thank good you time so much. Nice talk about this stuff and uh, reminisce a little bit on some of the old projects. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Thanks for taking the time to, to sure. talk with us. Thank you, Mr. Mace, for talking to us today. That was a very enlightening interview. If you like what you're hearing on the podcast, you can find us wherever you get podcasts, and it would really help the show if you rate, review, and subscribe. That'll help us get boosted up in some search results. We're also on YouTube, where we upload not only the full episodes, but we're also starting to upload some exclusive content, maybe stuff we didn't have time for in a main episode or uh, excerpts that we thought were particularly interesting. You can find that on our YouTube page. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search Early American Brass Band Podcast. And as always, you can find show notes for each episode on our website. That's eabbpodcast.com. And if you'd like to get in touch with us through good old-fashioned email, our email address is eabb.podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Love to hear uh, your suggestions and what you think, uh, what you think of the show. And if you want to write us via snail mail, go ahead and write us a letter. Mark the envelope as the Early American Brass Band Podcast and leave it outside your front door. I'm sure we'll get it in about two to three weeks, so <laughs> you can try that as well. Yeah. <laughs> Strap it onto your carrier pigeon that you keep in your garage. Yeah, <laughs> featured album is A Storm in the Land. That is the American Brass Quintet's second early American brass band CD. It is their first 26 North Carolina Moravian band CD. That was the CD that was released in 2002. Uh, again, that middle album of the ABQ's early American brass band uh, repertoire. So we're going to include some notes about that album and that recording project maybe a picture provided by mr mace if he's able to dig it up uh, on our show notes page so go over there to eabbpodcast.com to the show notes page and look at our featured album a storm in the land by the american brass quintet thank you so much for joining us today and we'll see you next week for episode 10. Thank you.